Hello. A quick word about the time and place we are in right now. We started this podcast. Our inspiration was the fun we had drinking beer, comparing tasting notes, laughing, and telling our stories. And we've worked hard to keep our personal politics and beliefs out of the I Like Beer podcast, not because we don't have political views or strong moral convictions, but because this was our place to escape into a few beers and some laughs. Each member of the ILB team has strong political views, cares deeply about the country and world we live in, along with everyone living in it. Three of us are public school teachers who have dedicated our careers to educating young people into being thoughtful, caring, compassionate, intelligent citizens. We're all parents. In other parts of our lives, we are active in promoting our politics and supporting peace and love and compassion and social justice, as well as environmental causes. We absolutely support Black Lives Matter, the struggle against racism, against oppression, and for social justice. Talent can attest to my personal social media accounts. I am not shy or soft-spoken in my politics or my support for social justice, nor is anyone else on the team. You know, we will continue to provide the highest medium-quality entertainment on our podcast. We will continue to focus on what our vision is for this podcast, but we don't want to appear tone-deaf or blind to what's happening in the world around us. We love and respect our Black Brown, all other brothers and sisters, and will continue to actively support change in our real lives, even as we keep our podcast a place to have some fun. Thank you. I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. It helps me unwind, and sometimes it makes me feel mellow. Welcome to I Like Beer, the podcast, where we discuss great beers and the stories that go with them. I'm your host, Jeff. And I'm your host, Jeff. And we are lucky enough to reside in North County of San Diego, America's finest city for craft beer, which means we have over 160 breweries and tap rooms within minutes of our front doors. Yeah, but it's been great to see so many of them starting to open their doors again. Um, not exactly back to normal at this point, but uh, good to see them starting to open up and, and serve the public more easily. Um, I actually went in last week to Belching Beaver 980, the little pub there, sat out on their patio, and and that was kind of nice just to be in, in a spot. Um, got an email today from Clayton from Epic, uh, inviting us to come over. They're reopening on Friday uh, and Saturday. Again, practicing all safe social distancing you know, rules and regulations, but trying to put people in situations where they can actually get out to their local uh, tap room or brewery. Very exciting. In fact, by the time this releases, Epic will have already opened. So don't you won't have to wait for Friday or Saturday. They'll be they'll be open. Yeah. You should have already been there. Right. What's wrong? <laughs> Where were you? We are looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Join us on social media at I Like Beer the Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter as well. I like Beer the Poe one and I like Beer the Ta one. We'd like to virtually toast you as well. So send us a friend request on Untapped. Most importantly, please keep sharing our podcast with your beer-drinking friends. And we have a new friend joining us tonight. And with us this evening, a very special guest, Judith Downey, curator of the Brew Cive and Special Collections and History Librarian at Cal State University, San Marcos. Welcome, Judith. Hi. So yes, welcome, Judith. We're very excited to have you here. Basically, the way we look at it, kind of good history is storytelling, and that's what we try to do. Um, and our ongoing mission is to be kind of an educational podcast as well, uh, first and foremost. And so uh, we spoke recently with uh, home brewer Damon Adamo 
of Yellow House Brewing, and and he said we had to talk to you. Um, and so we're very excited that uh, we finally get that opportunity. Well, I've been to Damon's and I've enjoyed his beer. So, <laughs> yeah, we enjoyed his beer too. He 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 was very uh, generous. Uh, he I thought we were going to get one or two, and he dropped off about six or seven for each of us. Each, and, uh, yeah, they were fantastic. And yeah, each it was it was he was super generous, very cool. It was it was fun conversation talking with him, and and so uh, uh, yeah, he's he's a great guy. And in case he's listening, promises made, honey blonde with peanut butter was promised. That's true. <laughs> yes, I remember that. I wrote that down, actually. So, <laughs> Listeners, the history of brewing in San Diego is full of intrigue. It's a story of immigration, of death, of mayhem, of women in business, of border crossings, the mob, encroachment from the East, initial failures, eventual success, and of amazing collegial support and brewing family trees all interconnected. And we have a San Diego authority on all of this with us today. Now we're shying away from the term expert, Judith's modest request <laughs> compared to us, big time expert. <laughs> yes, I would agree. So Judith, if you could start off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do over at Cal State San Marcos, also here in North County, San Diego? Okay, well, I'm local born and raised. And to me, Pearlbed Village Drive will always be Elm Street, so that should tell you that I am truly a local. Um, went to Carlsbad Schools, uh, was never much of a beer drinker. I'll put that out there on the table right now. Um, just wasn't something that was in my wheelhouse for many, many, many years until this opportunity to collect San Diego beer history came up. Um, at Cal State San Marcos, I've been there for, uh, I think it's going on 28 years now. I actually graduated from there. I have been a variety of positions, but my most recent, as you said, is Special Collections and History Librarian. And part of that is being curator of the Brewchive, which is the archive of San Diego craft beer from the 1980s on. Um, earlier beer history is saved at the ha San Diego History Center, and I'm not going to compete with them. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting the stuff that's happening now. But uh, in my position as Special Collections and History Librarian, I work with history students primarily, uh, researchers in history, teaching them how to do research, helping them when they get stuck. I also help develop the collections at the campus. And I work uh, with faculty governance. And I also publish. You know, that's one of the things you do as an academic. So kind of have lots of fun on my plate. And the Special Collections Unit is a new unit in the library that we just founded last year. So we're kind of a baby unit. We're still developing our policies and procedures, but uh, the campus has always saved its own history in an archive, which I've been in charge of. But now we're expanding from just campus history to community and local business history, things that are unique to us, like the Brewchive and like the Ecke family who made the poinsettia so famous. And we also have a large collection of negatives, over 33 years worth of photograph, photograph negatives from a local news photographer, which we are working on. that has got phenomenal uh, impact for us when we get it all processed. So we have lots of things going on. Very cool. Exciting. Now, are you a Carlsbad High alum? Yes, I am. So are we. Raise your hand if you're a Carlsbad High alum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <of course>. okay. <laughs> yeah Go Lancers. Go Lancers. Right. So, and actually, uh, 
Jeff and I teach at Carlsbad High School now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're also, we, that, that's very funny. The three of us have grew up in Carlsbad, went to Carlsbad schools, and uh, definitely remember local Say Elm, kindred spirits. <laughs> so um, just a, a real quick question. You said you weren't a big beer drinker. Have you become a beer drinker? Um, yeah, I, I've uh, found that I can't drink IPAs. Um, they do, they're too hoppy for me. Um, it's not the taste so much as it's what my body does when right. I drink high hop beers. So I will never do a double IPA or a triple IPA might kill me. I don't <laughs> want to cast aspersions, but that's sad because here we are in the capital of craft, which has made IPAs so well known. And I really, you know, I'll have a sip or two because I'm, I always like to educate myself and educate my palate, but I just know I can't have like a full pint of an IPA, but give me a good sour or a stout and I'm right there with you. Very cool. Aside from beer as a historian lecturer, what are some of your favorite things kind of to talk about or what are some of your favorite things to hear about? You know, what we can talk about with regards to beer or just in general? Well, my background in history has been really kind of a focus on women's history. And when I started looking at San Diego craft history, one of my questions was, where are the women in here? Mm -hmm. And I have actually found that there are actually women. It's just this beer records are not real great, (laughs) especially once prohibition hit, things just got trashed. And so we are missing a lot of history. And then with the way history has been reported for women, I'm kind of fighting against several barriers there to report it. But I, I am a bulldog when it comes to research and I just keep working and ferreting things out. And, so I love to talk about women in beer history, but beer history all just in general is to me very fascinating and really reflects a lot on not just beer as a community or a social beverage, but there's politics, there's legal, there's um, science, there's all kinds of issues in there. I mean, patent research even in beer history is quite interesting. And so there's lots of aspects that can appeal to a lot of different disciplines we have at the campus. And that is really kind of the focus of why we started the Brookhive was to support student research on the campus, but then also be able to support people researching beer in general. Very cool. So in a nutshell, because I know you could probably talk for days on this one, but how did San Diego of all places become such a mecca for craft beer? So what factors were in place or did, were we just that, were we lucky or was it, <laughs> uh, you know, again, what, what, how did that happen? Very lucky. Well, a number of factors would be um, the people. They're collaborative, and I think that makes a huge difference. I do talk to other beer historians, and yes, there are more of us than just me. For a while, <laughs> I thought I was a lone voice in the wilderness, and then I found that there was a tribe to belong to. <laughs> but when we talk, they all say, what is going on with San Diego? And I go, well, people are just really generous with their time. They're generous with working with each other. And a lot of times, the feedback I get from these other historians and other areas is we don't have that kind of collaboration. Really? And I, so I think that's really key because if you look back um, here, I start putting my little history hat on the San Diego Brewers Guild, which of course is a key element of collaboration. Greg Cook of Stone Brewing was the person to sign the incorporation papers for the Brewers Guild. Wow. And his philosophy was if we don't work together, we aren't going to make craft beer a go. I think that was really kind of a founding principle, and it set a tone for everybody to jump onto. And if you look at the documentary that Sheldon Kaplan did 
um, and I think 2010 is when it was released, called Suds County, USA. Mm -hmm. A reoccurring theme that comes through there when he's talking to all the old guard brewers is they collaborated. Somebody's grain mill would break, and they'd call somebody else up, and they would say, oh, yeah. Or if you look at Lee Chase, he was actually volunteering to help brew at several different breweries all at the same time, and nobody thought he was stealing any any secrets and taking them to another brewery. It was just like, we're all working together. We're all learning from each other. And so I think that's really a huge element. Another thing is, even back in the late 1800s, which San Diego Brewing started in 1868, water was always called out as an element in how good San Diego beer was. And even though now we're using Colorado River water for the most part, um, there's still a huge emphasis with a lot of the local brewers on high quality water. Right. Um, Paul Sangster at Rip Current is one who's just, I've heard him speak about water and he's just completely over my head with all the technical <laughs> stuff. But water is, of course, a major component of beer. And if you don't have a good beer, all the collaboration in the world isn't going to make it a go. Right. Yeah, I think the thing is interesting, both those points, I think we've seen validated time and time again in our conversations with breweries and brewers uh, and owners of breweries here um, is that that collaboration is at the core. Um, it, it's really impressive and and it's not the norm, you know, that you see, I think, in most businesses. And it sounds like maybe in other parts of the country, uh, they act more like your typical business in terms of the competition versus the collaboration. I think we're seeing more of it now, like with Resilience IPA that came out and things like that. There is more collaboration, but I think we definitely set the trend. Set the tone, yeah. We even have heard that from uh, breweries that have recently opened, that that, mm -hmm. that kind of collegial, communal, what do you need? I got you. Oh, this broke. Or do you have any advice? Has continued. So it's not just the, uh, the, the founding fathers, so to speak, in the San Diego, but it, that tradition has carried on all the way up into the brand new brewing yeah. places that we've we've and the brewers go to each other's breweries and, yeah. and yeah. drink and they have industry nights and you know there's just constant sharing most of them seem to have worked at the other people's breweries first that's the thing it's <laughs> yeah. like they work there and then they get their expertise and then they go on their own right. but again it, it doesn't seem to be animosity it's like yeah go out and and flourish and we're here to support you and, and help you get there so that's very cool well and this is something um i just got an email today five suits is going to be opening up with a soft opening as of Friday. And Nick Corona is an, of course, award-winning local home brewer who has belonged to the local homebrew groups, Quaff and Society Barley Engineers, and has always collaborated. And he has shared his knowledge. So it's not just the pros. It's right. And a lot of our pros have come from the home brewing clubs as well. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's a... A feedback loop, right. I would say, that everybody's doing it and it only benefits everybody. And I, I heard you speak about early San Diego brewing, and it seems like that there was an early trend with some different German immigrants that came in and started breweries. And without the success, I mean, early success and then ultimately no success, or I guess prohibition probably had a lot to do with that. And San Diego got a second run at it and got it right. I actually see San Diego brewing history in three waves. The first was the late 18, well, from 1868 until Prohibition, which we did have stop starts. You were mentioning death and all these other things. Yes, there was a lot, there were a lot of different things that happened then. 
Then, of course, Prohibition shut everything down because we weren't the big breweries who could continue to make malt syrups and things like that, which is how the big breweries like Paps and stuff survived through Prohibition. And, of course, they could some of them could brew beer under permit for medicinal purposes. But San Diego was not that big. Right. And then we have post-Prohibition until 1953, which is when big beer just kind of took all the local smaller uh, regionals out of competition, basically. And so we had kind of a desert of local beer until the 80s when craft brewing, home brewing became legal and craft started becoming a thing again. But uh, it's an ongoing cycle of, yeah, things things started up, failed, rebuilt, learned from lessons mm-hmm. and kept on going. I know Jeff has also read the the book Reign of Gold by Victor Villasenor. So Oceanside, Carlsbad, and San yeah. Marcos. One of my favorites. Definitely yeah. played a, a role, maybe not in beer and brewing but in prohibition distilling mm-hmm. uh the lake yes. the lakes out at san marcos and and crossroads in carlsbad as a place to uh to start to distribute illicit liquor so there's a rich history there too well and it's kind of amazing that we even had a, an active bootlegging and and all community because we were so close to the border it wasn't illegal to go into mexico and get potted basically and walk back across the border or drive back across the border or whatever. So it was very easy to access, but people didn't even want to bother to drive to Tijuana or to Mexicali to buy beer. And this is a little, this goes into the women's history thing is I have found some reports about a woman named Juana Ruiz who was arrested at least 10 times for bootlegging in San Diego. (laughs) Um, She was finally, she actually escaped from the authorities one time and was on the lam for about eight months. And when she was caught and taken into court, the judge said, you know, it's time for you to leave the county. (laughs) And that's where the record ends on her. I would love to find out what happened with her, but uh, she was quite a character. Yes. I thought you were just describing my uh, freshman year at San Diego State talking about driving across the beer, the border to get beer. But uh, OK, never mind. <laughs> now a student has their master's thesis right there, Juana Ruiz. Yeah, there's there's very little mention of her except in the old San Diego Union. They describe her as a middle aged Mexican woman. So and I've been able to find just, you know, a couple of hints about her here and there. She supposedly served time in San Quentin. I have been at the California State Archives and gone through the uh, prison record books, and I can find no record of her. Now, whether she might have been under another name or whatever, it, it's very difficult. Lots of gaps in the record. Yeah, that's fascinating, though. Lots of interesting women. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't the only bootlegger. There are other... That, that needs to be a whole episode, bootleggers from the San Diego region. That could be its own podcast, but, that's, but that's, that's a good definitely call. one for us to think yeah, about, talent. We got... We got to keep that in mind. <laughs> do some research. We can do that. Do some research. <laughs> Judith, we have a little bit that we call, I bet you didn't know. Can you hit us with some beer history knowledge? What's something you bet we didn't know? And, and bear in mind, we don't know very much. <laughs> okay. Well, um, to give it a historical aspect again, because that is my big thing is history. Of course, everybody knows Mission Brewing, the iconic building down by the airport, and they, most people know that it was an influenza hospital during the 1918 pandemic, which is, of course, you know, history repeating itself almost, it seems like. But a lot of people don't realize that Mission Brewing was actually started, um, it was going to be called Panama Brewing to tie with the Panama Exposition that we had in San Diego. Oh, okay. That didn't happen. It was going to become Bay City Brewing. 
I've actually seen artists rendering with a sign saying Bay City on the side rather than Mission. But the actual people to actually make Mission happen were the brother-in-law and father-in-law of J.H. Zitt, who was the owner of San Diego Consolidated Brewing Company. Nice. And they had come from the Midwest. They got Mission open. But when Mission closed with impending prohibition, it didn't really close. It transferred over to J.H., who ran both San Diego Consolidated and Mission as two separate breweries. But he was basically the beer baron of San Diego because he Mm. had the monopoly on all the local beer. (laughs) (laughs) But he closed Mission because Mission's claim was to survival was the fact that they were brewing Hopski, which was a near beer. And Zip, who was big on the water, he was big on quality beer. That was their tagline for San Diego Consolidated was the quality beer. He said, I will never brew anything but real beer. And so he closed Mission ahead of Prohibition because he just wasn't going to mess with the near beer. Interesting. So a lot of people don't realize that about Mission, that it was actually owned by San Diego Brewing for a while. Nice. Perfect. And now we want you, if if you don't mind, to tell us a little bit about Brewkive. What's Brewkive and what sort of things can we find there? Well, you're probably going to regret hearing about that because I just wanted to talk about the No way. (laughs) (laughs) The collection was started in 2017. We made a formal launch announcement at uh, Stone's 21st anniversary when Stone had been doing their anniversary event on the campus. They've now moved down to Liberty Station because they've got that big, beautiful area down there. and They don't have any stairs to deal with like they had at our campus. But uh, so the Brewcott is about three years in development. Um, our collecting focus is on San Diego craft brewing from the 1980s on. I'm not going to mess with the earlier brewing because San Diego History Center has a lot of that. And it's just real hard to find that information because so much of it's been lost or it's in private collections. I also collect information about the local homebrewing groups and homebrewers because so many of them have gone pro. You know, you can't have one without the other. And my goal is to capture history before it goes in the trash. A lot of stuff gets thrown away. People don't think it's important. It's something I enjoy. I've collected it and it's just stuff. I mean, I've talked to a number of brewers, especially the old guard people who go, oh, I threw that away. And it's like, you're killing me <laughs> say that, you know. But if we don't have that evidence, how can we ever see the importance and see the trends and see the effect that brewing has had or the examples, the evidence that brewing has of how our society has changed over time? But what you will find in our collection are all kinds of things. It runs the gamut from coasters and stickers, uh, glassware and growlers. And um, when my boss listens to this podcast, she's going to not want to know that we have over 100 growlers now. Um, <laughs> they take up a lot of room, but they're so emblematic of the, of the brewery. Um, tap handles when I can get them, although tap handles are kind of expensive, so they don't come to me very often. We also have photographs. We have advertising media. We have... Um, really anything that reflects the development of San Diego breweries that I can get my hands on. Um, my favorite item in the collection is probably the original tap handle from Alpine Brewing, which was given to, to us by Pat McElhaney when we recorded an oral history with him. So I do record oral histories. We're kind of in the process of transcribing them. They're laborious to tr- transcribe, so it's taking me a while. But our largest collection in the brew hive is from Greg Cook of Stone. Uh, he and I are both hoarders. <laughs> he admits he's a hoarder. I admit I'm a hoarder. He's given us thousands of photographs, hundreds of empty beer bottles and glassware, 
marketing materials. We also have some of his personal material, like an album. He was in the music industry before he got into the brewing industry, and he recorded a song on an album. We actually have the album. It's still sealed in its cellophane, So, nice. and I don't have a record player, so I haven't heard the song <laughs> yet. My favorite item in the Stone collection, Stone business collection is the fact that Greg and Steve Wagner uh, homebrewed together before they actually got Stone launched. And Greg, with his MBA in marketing, was um, always, of course, looking at ways to represent themselves. And they kind of called themselves, as many homebrewers do, they give themselves business names. And they were Koch and Wagner Brewing. And Greg created labels with Koch and Wagner Brewing. Really? And I have bottles with the Koch and Wagner Brewing labels on them. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Which is really a lot of fun. Yeah. So that's probably my, my favorite item to show when I'm showing somebody the stone materials. That's very cool. Uh, but we also have lots of documentation. As the curator, I collect, you know, and kind of assemble. And I have created dossiers on every single brewery that I can find any record of, even ones that never actually opened. Maybe they pulled a business license. Maybe they just announced that they were going to open. There's probably 10 different versions of Mission Brewing. There's a number of different versions of various brewery names. Um, there were breweries that had a name and then had to change their name because somebody else was using the name, like Fezziwig became Arcana, things like that. So I've got over 325 dossiers on various breweries. And I actually have an Excel spreadsheet, which I don't share with anybody because it's a mess, of all the breweries and all the tap rooms who have ever tried to open all their alternative names and everything. And that has about 650 entries in it. And that's, is that since about 1987, you're saying? No, that's from 1868. But the bulk of it is from the 1980s on. Oh, all the way through. It's there for research. Um, I've actually had students in our, uh, on our campus who are either in the history program or political science or environmental science or in the engineering program, which is actually the inspiration for the brew kive, is we have a brewing certificate that has a beer history class. They've come in and they've used materials and they say, well, what can I do out of all this stuff you've got? And I can say, well, maybe you want to look at the breweries that never opened, or maybe you want to look at breweries that were only open for a few months and then closed and say, why did they close so quickly? Or look at the breweries that are long-term successful, like Carl Strauss, Ale Smith, um, Stone, things like that, and look at what they've done. And, you know, that's a way you can research them. So there's lots of things that people can use to, to use as research inspiration, and then use it as the evidence in writing their papers and doing their research. I've published a couple of articles, and I have lots more that I've got half-written about things I have found in uh, doing the research for the Brewkive. There's lots in the Brewkive um, for people to visit. We're, we are not a museum, so we don't really have an exhibit space, but uh, they're free to contact me, and uh, I will give them a tour. <laughs> Or, you know, if they have a specific research need, we can certainly work together. If we don't have it in our collection, I probably have some way of knowing where information is. Very good. I'm going to make two points of interest for our listeners. If you're not familiar with Cal State San Marcos, when Judith said that Stone moved because of the stairs at Cal State San Marcos, there's not just a few stairs. Uh, students affectionately call uh, CSU SM. CSU Stairmaster, there are a lot of stairs at Cal State San Marcos. And Tom, I know, is wondering if a disorganized Excel spreadsheet is an irony. I'm going to count it. Counts as an irony, Tom. 
(laughs) (laughs) Judge says it counts. Might be the first one on this podcast. (laughs) So Judith, how did you get involved in the brew scene? How did you land here? Well, um, like I said, um, I wasn't really drinking beer, wasn't into the beer scene, didn't really know what was going on. But um, the engineering program that we have, anytime there's a new program proposed, it has to go through all the campus departments to see, do we have the resources to support it? Is it rigorous? And it comes to the library uh, to see that we have the materials to support the research. And I got called in because at the time I was the history librarian. And the dean, my boss, and the associate dean, her kind of a secondary boss, said, uh, there's a beer history class in this program. And what have we got on beer history? And I said, well, really nothing, because nobody's ever asked me to, what do we have on beer history? Well, the associate dean is a home brewer. And so she was plugged into the, to the local beer scene. And she said, who's collecting San Diego beer history? It is exploding in San Diego. And I went, I don't know, but ask me a research question. I will find out. <laughs> I, that's part of my skill set. And so, I researched and I found that the San Diego History Center had the pre 1950s stuff, and there had been like an exhibit uh, done at the Museum of Man, things like that. But there was nobody really actively collecting what was going on. And so I went back to the dean and the associate dean and said, "Well, nobody." And they said, "Well, we'll do it." And I said, "That means I do it." (laughs) (laughs) And I love a research challenge. And so the first thing I did was I joined a couple of local homebrew groups. And we informed an advisory board with Tommy Arthur, Sheldon Kaplan, and some other people to kind of advise us what did the brew archive need to collect um, so that the industry could maybe find it useful and who were the people we needed to talk to. And so that started opening some doors. I became a member of Pink Boots to start meeting the women in the industry locally. And everybody's really excited about um, somebody collecting history locally and preserving it and being interested in it. And I started drinking beer, found out I couldn't drink the IPAs, but started finding there's lots of other beers being made that I can certainly enjoy. And I continue to educate my palate on them. So it was kind of being in the right place at the right time to take on this new research challenge. (laughs) That's very cool. And it's been a big part of my life. Are there unique challenges to collecting for the archives? Oh, Well, I think any archivist or curator would tell you catching material before it goes in the trash is probably the biggest challenge. For me, it's getting to the right people, getting to understand how important it is to save what they're doing, and for them to find the time to collect stuff. Because a lot of times they say, oh, I've got it, um, but I have to dig it out, or it's not organized. And it's like, it doesn't have to be organized. Just give it to me, and I, you know, as I need to ask questions about, why is this important or what's the, what does this mean? I can get back to you and you'll certainly answer that. But a lot of it is getting in touch with people because it's just me. And there's so many, I think there's obviously so many breweries, so many brewers, so many people who have been involved. I wish I had a lot more time. And people say, Oh, I'll help you. I'll help you. And it's like, well, it takes time for me to organize and to coordinate things as well. And so it's just, I need more time, but I also need, people to actually follow through with me. I, I have to follow through with them and they have to follow through with me to give me their stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I will, this is just a, a personal thing about the way I feel. We've already had four breweries closed during 
the last few months, um, some COVID related, some not. And I feel like such a vulture when I reach out to them when they're closing to say, please think of us and give us your stuff. We really want to preserve it. We are not making a profit on this. Archives are extremely expensive to run. So this is something that the campus is really getting behind and supporting from our budget. And of course, our budget's going to get hit like everybody else because things are going to be real tight. But it's important to save this stuff. And if I don't reach out to somebody when they're busy closing their business and say, please think of us, they're just going to get rid of it. Right. So I have to be the vulture and I have to say, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I try to come and support you as much as I can, but there's only one of me. There, there's so many places to be, but do try to think about giving us the stuff that, you know, will represent you the good, the bad, the ugly. It's part of the story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the ultimate uh, one man's, one person's garbage is another person's treasure, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, people go, oh, well, you know, beer labels aren't important. I mean, there are beer label collectors, you know, the, yeah. the artwork on the beer labels tells a lot of story. So it's, it's important to say regardless. But the challenge is getting people to remember that we're here, to be aware that we're, we even exist and to give, give us their stuff. I got a question for you here about, you know, there's a kind of an impressive focus on women in the brewing industry and in, in many of your presentations. So uh, what are some of your takeaways uh, from research uh, done about women in the field? Uh, women can do everything in the brewing industry. They are creative, they're dynamic, they're involved, they're dedicated. I think some women let themselves be held back. But pink boots, and there are other there are other places to support women as well, are helping them come out. But I've seen, especially back in the first breweries, Dobler's, Cholas Valley Brewery, and City Brewery, which were the two first San Diego breweries. Both of those breweries lost the men who had founded them, and their wives, as the widows, continued the businesses. Women can do it. They may get a male brewer coming in to help them. Or whatever, but uh, I see a lot of conversation about women-owned breweries and guys walking. You know, well, I shouldn't say guys. Anybody will walk in, and they will be surprised to find that a woman is the brewer, that a woman is the owner, and it shouldn't be a surprise because women can do it. Right. I've seen some amazing beers come from women in the brewing community, and they are great partners. And that is not to put the men down, but. You know, the playing field is still, you know, I mean, when you say a brewer, who do you think of? You don't think of a woman. You don't think of a person of color. Beard. The beard. You think mm -hmm. of a beard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think you're seeing that as a movement across the country as well. I think of a, a re-emphasis or a focus on that, which I think is a great thing. Yeah. So, Judith, you mentioned if someone's interested, you don't have a museum we can walk into. But for people like Tom and Jeff and I that get pretty excited about this stuff. We, we probably could spend hours looking at labels and artwork and business plans that were buried. Uh, this is just the sort of thing we get excited about. How does a person find out more or perhaps viewer visit the collection? Well, since we aren't, the campus is closed right now, so we're not open to any visits at all. But once we are back open to the public, which, you know, at this point is not determined, um, people can reach me through the Brewkive webpage, which is www.brewkive.org. 
That's actually a redirect URL that will take you to our official longer URL. But through the contact us, there's a form that you can fill out and get a tour conducted by yours truly. (laughs) (laughs) Because I love to show what we have. We do have some material digitized on the, on the web page and other stuff says it's in process. Again, it's me doing a lot of this stuff. So it just takes a lot of time. I am not the most technological person, so usually it takes me a little while longer to get things done. But uh, one thing we have of interest on the page is Greg Norton, who's a past president of Quaff, Quality Ale and Fermentation Fraternity in San Diego. Uh, he was also their newsletter editor for many years. He's been kind of my mentor. He gave us all, like, over 30 years of brewing recipes, his brew logs. Wow. And I digitized all of those and put them on the Brewkive website. So people actually have recipes there. They can see beer, mead, cider, all sorts of different recipes. Um, there's some other things that I'm working on digitizing. You know, so there's some stuff to look at. And as we digitize more, there would be more on the website. But right now, because the campus buildings are locked down, I can't get in and digitize sure, yeah. anything. <laughs> but uh, they can reach me through the Brewkive website, brewkive.org, when we're open, and uh, or if there's something in particular that they're interested in, that once we're open, that may, you know, they're going to let us in back to our offices eventually, there might be something that I know that we have in the collection, because so much of it's in my head, that I could digitize and share with somebody. You know, I mean, I if somebody's got something that they're working on, you know, a student or somebody of interest, or they want to say, have you got this? Maybe I can take a photograph of it or something and send it to them so they can see it. Business plans have been a little short in supply. I would love to collect a lot more of those. But, of course, a lot of people don't want to reveal their proprietary information. And I certainly understand that. Uh, Peter Zine of Alesmith, I talked to him about some of his retired beer recipes. And he said, well, actually, because I'm planning on re-releasing some of them. And I think a lot of people think that way. But Alex Van Horn of Intergalactic which closed a couple of years ago. He's no longer in state, but his family still lives here. He has promised me the next time he comes back to San Diego, he will get his brew logs out of storage, and those will be something I will have to to digitize. And hopefully there'll be some other documentation. So there's lots of things out there that will come to me eventually. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's a work in progress. Very much so. We've only been doing this for three years, so... (laughs) And I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to go back and capture 30 years worth of stuff. So, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not all there yet. And the brewers are busy. They're making beer. Yes. <laughs> and, and serving beer. Uh, you've mentioned that you're a fan of the sours and have found some other styles that you enjoy as well. And I know you got to make friends out there. So I'm not going to put you on the spot with a favorite. But what are some of your favorite breweries to visit when, when you have it on your agenda to, to hit? You're, you're genuinely excited that you get to stop by. Well, I I won't really say who I really prefer. I mean, there are places where I go in and I feel very comfortable, and there are other places where it's, you know, for whatever reason, it might not be as quite as comfortable a space for me, and that's just me. So, And there's actually about 30 breweries I haven't been to yet. I mean, it's hard for me to get down to the South County and stuff, so I, I don't like to play favorites, but I will say that um, the San Diego Vice Series at Wild Barrel is probably, at this point, my favorite sour because I like to go in and they've always got some different variation of it on on tap. Although I have to say, Bill Sobieski, the brewer's pink guava 
which those the pink guava come out of his yard is maybe <laughs> my favorite because I love a good story with my beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. We're the same way. That's how we started this. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Judith, thank you so much for spending a little time with us and sharing your story and what you're doing. I do have one little shout out I would like to share with everybody. Of course. Yeah, go ahead. And that is the Special Collections Unit actually released a community-wide archiving project called Together Apart. And it's actually at together-apart.csusm.edu. But we're actually going to be launching in the next couple of days. So hopefully it will be out by the time that this broadcast is available called Glass Half Full. And that is an archiving project specifically directed to the San Diego brewing community and the people who like beer in San Diego. We would like to hear your stories about how COVID has affected you, how it has affected your interaction with the brewing community and other people who enjoy beer. There will be a link on the brewchive.org webpage called Glass Half Full. So hopefully people will be able to go to the site and click on that. And we will be collecting stories. And if people have things they want to donate, you know, realia, like, you know, anything that they've got, they can certainly do that as well. But we really want to collect stories about how this has affected the San Diego beer community, because again, we're a microcosm of society and industry and community and collegiality and everything. And so we want to collect that. Very cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll check it out and we'll encourage people to check that out. It's a great project. Thank you. And we'll tell a story or two. It's what we love doing. Yeah, we might be able to tell a story or two. So, Yeah. And if they don't want to tell a beer related story, we've got the Together Apart site. So, you know, we've got ways to collect everybody's story. Very cool. This is a time like we hopefully will never have again in our lifetimes, but lots of lessons to be learned and history to be saved from it. Well said. Well, I, I want to say personally, again, thank you, but also on behalf of the whole team, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I love what you're doing over there and can't wait to have the time when things open up so we can come over and actually check it out in person. Um, I'm definitely going to check out the website and, and look at start looking at that part of it. Yeah, it's been really fun. It's educational. I, I'm going to give you another little shout out because I listened to a, a presentation. Uh, they did a San Diego a Beer History Live panel that you were part of on the Indie Beer Show. Uh, I think in 2019, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating. I learned so much about some of my favorite breweries, and it was just really fun. So I, I would encourage people to go look for that as well, search that out and find that, um, because even when you think you know, you don't really know. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know, and and a lot of it's just really, really interesting in terms of how, especially from you take from the 80s on and how some of these these breweries like Pizza Port and, and Carl Strauss and stuff have, have gotten to where they are now. So Well, and you can always maybe see me. I, I do lots of presentations and talks, but also I go to a lot of the beer festivals and either have an information table there about the archive with favorite items that I like to exhibit, or sometimes I'll go and help pour beer at a booth just because I like to support the community. So if you see me nice. running around, yell at me and we can talk beer history. <laughs> Will do. Most Will definitely. Do. Judith, thank you so much for spending a little time with us and thank you. sharing your story and what you're doing. It's been a lot of fun. It has been. Great. Thank you. It was great to talk to you guys. I feel so much smarter now, which is not a big leap, but every little bit counts. <laughs> <laughs> There's always more to learn. <laughs> That's right. You don't have to tell us. We, we, we preach that all day. 
Listeners, thank you also for spending some time with us. We hope you enjoyed meeting Judith Downey, learning a little bit more about San Diego beer history. Uh, we'd love to keep chatting, but right now, we got to run. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, beer run. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, beer run. All we need is a ten and a five, or a car and a key and a sober driver. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, beer run.